millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, Deconstructed listeners. Before we get to the show, I'd like to talk to you for a moment about the Intercept's fundraising campaign. We have an ambitious goal to raise $400,000 by June 30th. That's next Wednesday. Intercept readers have started kicking in, and now we want to invite deconstructed listeners to join in too. You can donate at theintercept.com give. Donations of any size are welcome. No matter the amount, you're part of a grassroots community making our independent journalism strong. You can make a one-time gift or become a monthly donor and break that up into more affordable chunks like 5 or $10 a month. Plus, Everyone who donates $50 will receive an Intercept t-shirt. Join us in holding the powerful to account. Make your donation at theintercept.com give. Over the last year, this show has become an increasingly important part of our DC political coverage. It was here on Deconstructed that we first published leaked audio from a Biden Zoom call back in December. We ready to go? Can't hear you, Cedric. You're on mute. And just this month, we obtained audio of Senator Joe Manchin on a phone call effectively asking donors to dangle a post-retirement financial opportunity in front of a fellow senator to induce him to change his vote. Roy Blunt is a good friend of mine, a great guy, okay? Obviously, we don't believe that the need for our adversarial reporting has lessened just because Donald Trump has decamped back to Mar-a-Lago or Bedminster. Over the next four years, our newsroom will be aggressive in reporting on the powerful in both parties. We're not backing down from stories that draw blood from the new administration. This is who we are and why we exist. This reporting is not easy, cheap, or profitable. To help power our reporting in the coming year, head to theintercept.com slash give. That's theintercept.com slash give. Your donation also helps keep all of this free for those who can't afford paywalls. Thank you for all that you can do. And now on to the show. On June 14th, former intelligence specialist Reality Winner was finally released from federal prison to a halfway house. A former NSA contractor sentenced for leaking secrets to the news media released from prison today. But it wasn't part of any pardon, commutation, or compassionate release. She was released for good behavior ahead of her full release, which is scheduled for November. The five years she spent in prison is the longest federal sentence ever handed down to a whistleblower in U.S. history. The release today for good behavior. She's now on home confinement. For more on how she was treated in prison, go back and listen to our interview with her mother, Billy Winter Davis. All of the experiences that she has had in the system has opened her eyes. Human beings shouldn't be treated like this. The approach that our government now takes in punishing those who leak classified information is new. We didn't always bring down the full weight and power of the law on whistleblowers. The only person to spend more time than Winter behind bars for leaking classified information is Chelsea Manning, who served her time in a military prison. She was first detained on May 27, 2010, for leaking State Department cables and evidence of U.S. war crimes to WikiLeaks. She was sentenced to 35 years in maximum security, but her sentence was commuted by President Obama after nearly seven years. The Obama administration had actually considered charges of precisely this kind, but ultimately concluded it would violate the First Amendment and have an intolerably destructive effect on the free press. 
Chelsea Manning, as she'll discuss on the show today, went back behind bars just two years after being released for resisting a grand jury subpoena in the Assange prosecution. She was freed again just as the pandemic ramped up. We'll also be joined by Ken Klippenstein, an investigative journalist for The Intercept who has brought a new public-facing approach to developing sources inside the military, corporations, and government agencies. He's also developed a reputation for trolling politicians on Twitter and recently tricked Matt Gates into retweeting an image of Lee Harvey Oswald, thanking him for his, quote, service. I wanted to bring the two of them together because of their mutual appreciation and their mirror image roles in the quest for transparency. As Manning puts it, If Ken were around in 2010, he would have been the recipient. Well, I'll just put it that way. I'm Ryan Grimm. This is Deconstructed. All right. So every episode, of course, of Deconstructed is special, but this is a very special episode. We're bringing together one of the most important whistleblowers in several generations, along with a journalist whose name has kind of become synonymous, at least on Twitter.com, with whistleblowing. So I'm talking, of course, about Chelsea Manning and Ken Klippenstein. Welcome to you both. Hey. Hey, uh, which is which is which, Ryan? Well, you didn't say uh, until you blow the whistle on. No. Um, so, Chelsea, let's tell people a little bit about how this episode actually came together. A few days ago on on Twitter, you put out a pretty funny post, a cryptic post, <laughs> a cryptic post. just said Ken Klippenstein. That was it. Uh, so uh, t- tell us about that. What did you what did you mean by that? Uh, enough said. It speaks for itself. It yeah. does speak <laughs> yeah. for itself. And then the philosophers your, will debate the meaning for for eons. And then your re, your reply was our journalist. Yes, our journalist. The reason why I tweeted that was because, I mean, one, I'm a huge fan of Ken Klippenstein's trolling and his posts. You know, he's been doing really incredible work. You know, doing what muckrakers throughout history have done historically, which is to troll, you know, the powerful. And I view a lot of his his uh, more aggressive uh, Twitter antics as like an extension of that historical legacy, if you will. I mean, if, if you remember back before the big lawsuits of the, the late 90s and early 2000s, there used to be a lot more like hidden camera investigations, mm-hmm. a lot more undercover investigations and things like that. And I view that as no different. I, I view it in the same light. It may have a little bit more of a social media spectacle element to it, but I still see it as holding powerful people to account and really show and showing them who they are. Ken's version, I guess, would be that he trolls the comfortable and then comforts the trolls. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I, Chelsea, I want to point out here, I think you're engaging in some erasure because there is still undercover reporting. Are you going to just paper over all of the uh, excellent work that uh, Project Veritas has done? Because they still exist. Uh, yeah, but uh, that they're not, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't consider, I, we're not, we're not, go, we're not going to give them uh, the veil of credibility here. <laughs> there is a difference between propagandizing and, and, and doing real work. Ken Klippenstein can do both. And uh, <laughs> before we get to Ken's muck, muckraking, what are, what are you up to um, now? Ooh, so this year has been a little different. The year before that, I was obviously uh, in a grand jury resistance case. So I was in jail Mm -hmm. and then I got released after a depression spiral that happened. They ended the grand jury around the same time as they were getting more aggressive with trying to get me to talk to FBI agents as opposed to just the grand jury. I knew the pandemic was about to hit and I knew it was about to hit hard. 
And I was just terrified that I was going to spend, you know, because the county jail is different than prison. It's a lot more intense. There's fewer people, you're, you interact with fewer people. And I was under the impression that we I was going to spend the rest of the six months in lockdown and be forgotten about as a major disaster, rightfully so, what turned out to be, as I anticipated, one of the largest mm-hmm. disasters in modern history played out. So I, I went through a depressive spiral and uh, there was a suicide attempt, uh, content warning. Uh, I was re- released from, from jail and out into the middle of lockdowns. Literally the same week that I was released, uh, New York City went under the first week of lockdown. Mm-hmm. And I've been just sort of scrambling to uh, find my own place and find some semblance of uh, stability while the rest of the country has been, you know, wrecked by both a, an increasing amount of political tension and economic tension, as well as, you know, the devastation of uh, of this pandemic. And I, I will say that that year or so that you spent resisting the grand jury locked up is is one of the most incredible feats of courage that I can even contemplate because you had already spent, what, seven plus years uh, just, just, just shy, just 10 days shy of seven years. Yeah. 10 days shy of seven <laughs> years in just brutal conditions. And to then get a commutation from Obama and then to, to finally get your freedom. Right. And then to be willing to give that up again, it almost feels like it took more courage that time because you knew what you were putting yourself into. I guess, I, you know, I guess it's a different system, right. but it's, it's a, it's, you know, yeah. it's not not a whole lot different. Yeah, there's a, a you know, there's no charge, there's no trial. You just uh, go in there and you say, "I'm not answering questions." They give you immunity. They bypass the Fifth Amendment by giving you immunity. You have no protections, no lawyer or anything. It's and it's everything is done in secret. And and people, I think, make the assumption that it was about the 2010 case. And you know, it, they certainly seem to want to talk about that. But there, there's no limit to what they can question you on. And once you answer any questions, then you sort of waived your right to make a legal case mm-hmm. to resist subpoenas in the future if you cooperate. So I, I treated this as no differently than. Then if it was like for a protest or for some other grand jury, if it was a grand jury in, in general, I would respond the same way. But uh, it did, you know, it did, it did appear that this one was about specifically the uh, 2010 disclosures. You know, uh, the, the media was speculating, but our legal team and our and ourselves, uh, we never got full confirmation as to whether that was the case. So you can connect those dots. But right. never, I didn't answer any questions. So they never they never got around to asking any specific questions. And so I ended up not learn. I ended up not learning anything at all. But right. but yeah, I you know, and I, I, I have no problem. I have no problem risking. I have no pr- right. problem risking my personal safety and my personal comfort for that. The fines, I think, were much more egregious and much more troublesome and much more worrying, particularly since I I have never had a quarter million dollars before. And I was fined over a quarter million dollars. And if I had gone for another six months, it could have gone almost as close as half Mm -hmm. a million dollars. I have never had that amount of money in my entire life. So what's the status of those? um, So there was a crowdfunding effort after my release, and they managed to raise the money for that for me which I'm super grateful for, but it just put me at zero. It didn't really give me a, a foothold to, to, you know, I came, I came out of this with maybe a couple with maybe like some savings and, mm-hmm. and the charity of others uh, to, to just sort of 
because I lost everything. I lost my apartment. I lost my main source of income because of the pandemic, which is doing speaking engagements and traveling and doing traveling consulting. Um, uh, I do digital security consulting. Yeah. So the last year has, uh, has been about building from that. And I think content production has been for me a little bit more of a potentially stable means of generating income as since, since I, you know, I haven't been able to do events since I haven't been able to travel since I haven't been, since a lot of the clients that I normally go to for consulting work don't have the same amount of grants or funding Mm -hmm. than they did pre pandemic. So I've done what many other people have done. And that is the shift towards digital. (laughs) And so I've been playing video games. As well as doing activism, like I do, I still do my usual activism during the pandemic, you know, giving out masks, receiving donations for mutual aid groups, going around the city, doing deliveries, things like that. Pretty basic stuff. You know, it's been it's been a busy, wild year uh, here in New York. And yeah, and and then there was last summer, you know, because I was I was in the protests last summer. The protests were pretty intense. I was uh, I was actually uh, and I've already come out with this, you know, so I wasn't talking about it, but uh, I was. I was assaulted at the at Washington Square Park. Uh, the The police during the Pride event. It wasn't even like a protest. It was a march during the Pride march. We were attacked, and uh, I got teary-assed and roughed up by some of the uh, NYPD officers. Although I got some people in the crowd pulled me out, thankfully, and I was able to to clean myself up. But yeah, it was it was pretty wild that they came out of nowhere and uh, and attacked us. Yeah, I'm fine. I, was, I didn't get any. Was that just random or did they know who you were? Oh, I don't think they knew who I was. It was too chaotic. I, I, I was I was just a bystander, I think. I was dodging somebody who was coming at me or in my direction with a baton. I was dodging an officer and then somebody else came from the side and I got blindsided and I got decked and the, on the shoulder. And I've been... I, I've been digging for footage of it and I haven't been able to find camera footage of that. But I, there's definitely pictures of me in the crowd and nobody really noticed me in the, in the videos. So I'm guessing that the off, that the officers didn't recognize me either. I mean, I was wearing a mask too. Well, maybe somebody will find that footage and send it to, to Ken. Ken, what, what's your phone number that they should send that to if they have it? <laughs> um, I'm 202-510-1268. And you can send that on signal. Um, I love that this getting to know Chelsea, she has so many stories like this that are kind of, you know, shocking and you're, you're so understated in all of it that, you know, like you, you became a celebrity, obviously, after after your disclosures. But it, there's so much more that people don't know and that you don't talk about unless you're asked. Yeah, I mean, it's true. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty busy. I do a lot of things. I think one of the things that sort of is strange for me is I'm so used to this. In fact, I am so used to being in pri- like, and I've talked to therapists about this, right? I am so institutionalized. And I will admit that I am institutionalized from my experience being in prison for most of my adult life, that I view things baseline from the prison perspective. So I view things through the lens of my own experience in prison. And I try to like understand the rest of the world from that, which I think, you know, it's like people ask me, like, what's prison like? And one of the problems that I have constantly is I'm like, well, what's what's your what's this world like? Right. <laughs> what's the regular world like? Because I I'm still trying to figure that out. So most of my experience just just comes from either being in the military, being in prison. Immediately after after school, I was basically I was basically homeless for a year. Uh, I spent another year sort of working at Starbucks, work, going to college before I enlisted in the military. So my experience of most people's 
lives is pretty diff. The average person, pre-pandemic at least, has been foreign to me. Right, and then you had what about, about two? You were about out for about two years before you went back in. Yeah, and it was a whirlwind of travel, events, touring. I did a Senate campaign. I, I had a failed Senate campaign, which I which I view as actually successful. Like I was, I managed to like get the message out and get some ideas out there. And you know, I I don't I don't think that that was a I, I don't think that that was. I don't think it was a failure so much as it was like, I, I obviously didn't win. <laughs> right. Um, I feel like you have to compare it to a baseline of expectation. I, I would say Cal Cunningham had a failed Senate. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you're, if you're running to kind of bring issues out, that's a much different baseline. Yeah. He got, he brought issues out. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then you get released into a pandemic. Yeah. And I get re- released uh, from the grand jury because it was less than two years before I got the grand jury subpoena. That was a wild year and a half of trying to figure things out and uh, then losing everything again, like back to square one, you know, do not pass go, do not collect 200, go directly to jail, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, quite literally. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ken, so tell us a little bit about the muckraking that, that she's talking about. You know, for years, and like she said, for generations, you know, news outlets have been, some have been muckraking, some have been you know, soliciting tips, making it either easier or harder to reach out with with information. But you've kind of gone all the way in that direction. You, you're for people who don't know that that phone number you gave earlier. That's your number. Like if if somebody does have information, they can hit you on Signal, the encrypted app, and you'll receive it. When did you first start experimenting with that, and when did you realize that it was it was going to work? Well, it kind of emerged organically. I didn't really plan. For, you know, there to be this kind of Twitter thing where, you know, um, take, say, the Amazon story. Everyone's angry about Amazon. I just tweet out, oh, if you work there, you know, you could reach me via my number. There was never any sort of, like, scheme as much as I would like to pretend like I plotted this whole thing out. It just kind of happened. And I realized that, um, you know, if just being myself on Twitter um, and, and, and doing that, that, you know, that's quite different than how sort of legacy media not only does that, but how they're uh, socialized to you know, do journalism and J school and things. And so, you know, in retrospect, I'm glad that it played out how it did. Um, I didn't live in uh, DC or New York for a very long time. So I didn't have the same access to sources. So I had to come up with a 
you know, method to uh, find things different than than the things people are typically taught. And so it just, you know, I spent a lot of time on Twitter. So that was like my, that's sort of my porthole into the world um, when I was starting out. And so it just kind of emerged. I guess I didn't really think it through. And I've, I've just been kind of floored every time by how many people want to reach the press and how they wouldn't have a uh, means to do so otherwise. Because I said before, you know, I, I'm not from the DC area or hadn't been in New York for a long time. Those tend to be the constituencies that are best served by national media outlets. But if you're not an official and you don't know how to use those channels to get to media, there's a whole lot of other people that would love to reach media. They just don't know how to. And so I, I think it's just that I was talking to and reaching out to people that hadn't been reached out to more than any any sort of brilliance or finesse or anything on my part. Do you find that there's a typical type of person that reaches out to you or is it all across the spectrum? Um. It's not as obvious as people think. People always think, oh, it must be, you know, Twitter leftists or something. Or, you know, when I was reporting on Department of Homeland Security a lot under the Trump administration, some people would say, oh, there's Ken with his DSA sources and DHS. And it's like, you don't have a great sense of DHS, do you? <laughs> if, you think there's D- if you think there's DSA people in there, a lot of them are actually conservatives, my sources. I would say more than anything, they just don't fit neatly into the buckets that people like to think exist for politics. So it's not so much that they're liberal conservative. I tend to get a lot of people that they're just not really happy with 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 how things are being conducted. And I don't know how I would characterize their politics in a lot of cases. Some people, like myself, I guess, spend a lot of time thinking about politics. And so we have these designations and, and, and these ways that we characterize things and that we characterize ourselves. But a lot of people, they don't really necessarily think about these sort of theories or about, you know, the, the history of, of, of labor or whatever it may be. And, you know, they just see wrongdoing and feel bad about it. And that's what drives them. So I would say it's a lot more heterodox than 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 what than, than what you might think generally about about um, what kind of political person is this or, you know, what age group or what demographic is this person. And Chelsea, and also you guys can feel free to chime into each other. Yeah. But Chelsea, where would you put yourself on that spectrum when uh, in 2010, like how political would you would you say you were and what? What drove you to become the kind of person that would have uh, leaked to somebody like Ken? Uh, if if this were twi- if if Ken were around in 2010, he would have been the recipient. Well, I'll just put it that way. Mm-hmm. That I, I I say that hands down. So you know, I I was looking for someone, preferably a recognized outlet. Uh, in 2010, uh, I reached out to the Washington Post, the New York Times, before getting more desperate and trying other means and methods. And Ken obviously no he he blurts out like hey come send me encrypted encrypted messages right which didn't exist ten years ago and I, these kinds of methods weren't available then mm-hmm. in 2010 I didn't really have like, me personally I didn't have a, lo- a strong political bent right I, I I'm obviously now after living through prison and really kind of growing up a little bit I have sort of developed a more left-wing radical politics but that came after in 2010 i was pretty i mean pre when i enlisted the military i was pretty agnostic and one of the ways that i like to describe my politics in 2007 when i enlisted was my politics consisted of leave britney alone Mm -hmm. right (laughs) like that was that was how non-political i really was like i didn't really participate in politics. I didn't really participate in political discussions. You know, I I knew about history. I knew about Mm -hmm. politics, but I I didn't see it as being playing an active role in my life or making a difference in like I was much more in video game culture, in pop culture, 
I, I was kind of a normie, you know, in 2010. Or not, I was maybe by 2010, I was I, I was becoming a little bit more politically aware, but that was out of the necessity of of seeing the reality of what Iraq was and what Afghanistan was from on the ground, which was a pretty life-changing experience. But I, I think that the two political mo- moments for me in sort of mm-hmm. my political development happened first in 2008, which was the passage of Proposition 8 in in California. As sort of a queer person questioning identity, it made it made mm-hmm. me feel like the world was still like history was still happening, and that I was a part of it. And then going to prison and really experiencing that whole intense world of being a member of an, a, of a forgotten percentage, like there's a sing, there's a like a whole percentage point of the adult population that is incarcerated at any given time in the U.S. And isn't really talked about and is living in a totalitarian surveillance state every day mm-hmm. trying to survive. And that is the primary experience of my adult life after eight years of being in confinement, um, including solitary confinement for over a year. Mm-hmm. That's shaped my political experience more than anything else, I think, is is going through the carceral system. And what kind of people did you meet there? Were you able to make a lot of friends there? Are you still in touch with anybody there? Yeah, so prison prison rules are pretty strict on, they don't allow formerly incarcerated people to co- contact incarcerated people typically, and they check. So the answer is no, I've been completely disconnected, but I made a ton of friends. Everywhere I went, mm-hmm. I go, I go, you know, I'm, I make friends wherever I go. And it was no different in prison, right? You know, I was pretty friendly and I made friends with, with, a, with a, a large number of people. But you also can't get too close because people get transferred, they get moved, they they get released. You move housing units, you move custody classification levels. So, you know, there, there, there's a there's that little bit of distance because you know that at most you're going to spend time with somebody is three to five years. And that is extraordinary, right? Most people, you know, for a few weeks and you never see them again. But what I find so fascinating is that being on edge and being so desperate and having this like sense of community that like builds in an, in the carceral system and this environment without any sort of political elements to any of that, right? Just the ability of people to come together in a desperate time and come to an agreement, share resources, really get to know people and share experiences, especially in like group therapy sessions and things like that. And really face face ag- against the security apparatus on a regular basis. You know, if the guards pick on one person, it's not just a good thing to stand up for that other person. It's also in your direct interest because th- you could be next. The, the sort of group dynamic of having a group of people to like work together and have solidarity with each other has really struck me. And that was throughout the entire carceral system without without question. I think that TV shows and pop culture sort of give you an impression of what of what prison life is and sure there's some high school drama because you know it's 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 high school it's like high school but you can't leave mm-hmm. but also there's that aspect of you know I got your back at the end of the day if it comes between you and the guards the other inmates are going to have your back and that was every everywhere I went military civilian uh, educated, uneducated, white collar, blue collar, 
drug offenses, violent offenses. It didn't, you know, it didn't matter. Age, background, didn't matter. You know, that that sense of solidarity was always there. And that that's always been very powerful for me to remember. I know that people think, I, I, I think people are under this impression that like prison is like a violent place because of the inmates, but it's not. And I found this time and time again, time and time again, when I was in prison, the most violent and dangerous people I encountered time and time again were the prison guards, mm-hmm. you know, and this is, this is it. This isn't a, like a maximum, you know, these are in maximum security settings, right? Where time and time again, the most abusive people, the most violent people, because they have no, there's no consequence, right? Does society care if, you know, an inmate in a maximum security prison is, is just abused? What, what recourse do you have? What, you don't, you don't have a lawyer anymore because you're, you're convicted. You might have an appellate attorney, but that's, there's no cause of action. If you try to, to go to a civil court, the Prison Litigation Reform Act of 1997 basically forces you to exhaust your administrative remedies before you can file a civil suit. And when you do that, you know, you have no idea because they don't tell you and they don't have to tell you all of the the administrative remedies that you need to. And so you can get your your case kicked. And if you try to push a case more than three times, there's a three strikes you're out rule where essentially you lose your ability to to file lawsuits at all. So there's there's no recourse. There's no there's no way to to to, to navigate that in any kind of legal or administrative way. So and they know that. So they just they just abuse you and there's nothing you could do but take it. In the whole time you were there, did you see anybody get held accountable on the guard side for anything? The most I ever saw was whenever a, a, a prison guard would get into trouble, they would transfer them. That was the most I ever saw. They would make the problem go away. Like the Catholic Church. Or And, and, and the alternative is to transfer the inmate as well. Say you're in the, a civil district of Kansas, right? And you file a lawsuit, they'll transfer you to a different jurisdiction to like screw up your whole case. Mm -hmm. And they'll take all your papers and they'll take, you know, because they can just, you know, going through the transfer process, they, they take everything. You have to throw everything out. So you have no notes, you have no paperwork. And because you don't, you can't afford a lawyer and you're having to do everything yourself, you're screwed. And you basically have to dismiss the case because what are you going to do? I always used to say it's like it, it's worse than Vegas, right? The house always wins. They have total control over everything. Ken, how, how cognizant do you think the sources are who are reaching out to you of, of the risks that are inherent to leaking in a, at least if you're a member of the national security state now? It really depends. I think often not. I think the more senior, more experienced ones tend to be, but also counterintelligence is not an intuitive thing. You have to be trained to think that way. I don't think that it's human nature to kind of be very paranoid and think, you know, four steps ahead and try to anticipate what your adversaries are trying to going to try to do to get you in trouble. Um, so in my experience, the bulk of the concern I've had to shoulder and I've had cases where people will give me things and I'm like having to tell them, like, I, I can't use this. They're going to find out and explain to them why. And they're that's more common than my trying to be the kind of pushy reporter you think of in movies is a younger person, less experienced Definitely a moral compulsion. I can't stress enough how often, at least in my experience, it's a it's a moral impulse. It's not it's not even political necessarily because because people don't seem to have thought it through that much. It's more just like they see something, feel bad about it, and then I have to be the voice of reason and say, let's think this through. Like, how many people have access to this? 
what is the likely response to that kind of thing? And that's the opposite of how I expected things to work when I came into media. Right. But it's not how a lot of mainstream news outlets work. No. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and I could say out of experience, like I, I, I never thought I was going to prison. It had never happened before. And I think people forget that before my case, nobody had ever gone to prison for a national security disclosure to the press, right? Mm -hmm. It had never happened before. Even, even Dan Ellsberg, you know, he he turned himself into a federal courthouse. And I didn't really know about the, the Ellsberg case, but I knew about the Drake case. And the Drake case, you know, he was out and about and he never went to prison for it, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, Thomas Drake, you know, so so my, my understanding of the risks then was uh, was very different than it is now even now and i i thought worst case scenario i lose my job i lose my security clearance you know I, i'm in the doghouse and i can't get mm -hmm. a job anywhere else because nobody wants to hire me because you know because I, I i can't be a defense contractor anymore i lose my security clearance i'm discharged and i mm -hmm. thought those were horrible things don't get me wrong being in the military that was everything like this all my job security all my future everything that i was looking forward to was was at risk and i was willing to do that but I think that the idea that I was going to go to prison for all of this, I, do, I don't think was, it, it never really crossed my mind, right? Chelsea, you make an interesting point. I, I often find that sources will understand internally just within their agency what the likely consequences are, but they're, they are not good at anticipating the political consequences because the law is not fairly applied. The Justice Department clearly makes a calculation about how embarrassing things are. You know, I know people in the FBI that say, you know, there's a saying, an FBI official was telling me a little while ago, don't embarrass the Bureau. And sort of tacit in that is, you know, we're going to enforce these things depending on how embarrassing it is to official dumb here. And so that tends to be what they're weakest at. And I'm, that's not that they're dumb. It's like they don't work in politics. So how should they understand how something is going to be received and, and how angry senior leadership will be about it? So that's another thing. I would say that's probably the the foremost thing that I have to warn people about is is try to explain like there's going to be a shitstorm <laughs> in Washington media if this if this comes out. Chelsea, how do you think that would have changed your calculus if if you would have considered that? Ooh, uh, I have been asked this question before, and the answer is I don't really know what I would do if I had known. What I can say is that I would probably it would probably not change the outcome much. Mm -hmm. you know, and I hate trying to speculate, right? You know, and I've thought about this a lot because I get asked it a lot. I mean, no, that's the only reason it really comes up, right? Is because people people are like, well, you know, would you have, you know, and the answer is if I had done it any differently, it wouldn't have been me, right? Mm -hmm. I knew what I knew in 2010 and I had access to what I had and I had the time and resources that I had, which was pretty limited. High-speed internet is not a thing in a lot of places in 2010, you know, and this is this is gigabytes of data. Like this mm. is, I mean, even compressed. Like this stuff is, it's it's DVDRs, right? It's more, you know, it's like gigabytes upon gigabytes of stuff, right? So right. we're probably talking about, and I'm speculating here a little bit, but I I would I would assume that it would make me maybe perhaps a little bit more cautious in terms of time, where I was rushing in 2010. I was rushing, like 2010. I would say that I I definitely rushed out of necessity because I, I had limited amount of time in the US to be able to, to do uploads or to find any, anyone who would accept, right? So I felt rushed. If, if I had known the consequences, I am assuming that I would probably 
slow it down a little bit, but I would be a little bit more methodical, perhaps. But I again, I don't actually know. Right. Can we, it, it sounds to me like from the, your conversations with sources, the answer would be similar in the sense that they're driven by a moral compulsion. And this goes to this argument that Daniel Ellsberg has been making that it actually is unconstitutional to criminalize leaking, never mind criminalizing publishing. There's absolutely no constitutional basis for that, but there also isn't for leaking, that leaking is also protected by the First Amendment. And, and, and if the government wants to hold its employees accountable, the, the only thing that they can really do is all of the things Chelsea just laid out. You can be fired. You can be put in the doghouse. You can get, be dishonorably discharged. You can have your security clearance revoked. You know, you're, and that was they, scary enough. Sure, that, and that that's because <laughs> that salts the earth for your the rest of your career. And yeah, so the the number of people who would be dissuaded by prison but wouldn't be dissuaded by that, I think, is tiny. Because once you're willing to take that risk, you're doing it for a moral reason, not for any personal interest calculation. But you know, Ken, what do you, what do you think? Like you, if if we went back to the regime that Ellsberg is talking about, where somebody who leaks and gets caught faces professional consequences, but not criminal consequences. Do you think all of a sudden the leak floodgates open up or do you think it's roughly about the same? I would love for them to open up, but I think it would be exactly the same. I mean, when you look at these cases that the Justice Department brings, I don't see any evidence that there's a deterrence. In the intelligence world, at least, it's different in the you know private uh, business world and other areas. But in the national security world, which is a lot of what I cover, some leaks are handled internally. They handle it, quote, administratively. And the idea is maybe they'll, you know, cut off someone's access to a certain program and they'll move someone, someone, or they'll fire someone or whatever it is. People are plenty terrified of that. I mean, in the economic system that we have, I mean, any sort of administrative punishment, that's your livelihood. I mean, we don't have this generous welfare state that you can fall back on if you lose your job. So um, I've certainly never seen any evidence that there's meaningful deterrence. And it's so selectively applied to like the notion that this is not political. Going back to my you know FBI friend saying, don't embarrass the bureau. I know former leak investigators that carried out these cases in the FBI, and they'll tell you very explicitly that you know this is supposed to send a message to people to scare them. As has been described to me, how many four-star generals are targeted by these leak investigations? How many people in the senior executive service in the you know FBI or the DHS, whatever it is? It's almost never that. It's almost always people like Chelsea, junior people, rank and file. So the idea that it's some coincidence that the senior executives, I mean, I can tell you as a reporter, the senior executives leak. It's just that you never hear about it because the FBI and the DOJ, they don't go after those people, not publicly anyways. Right. So you know, I already see a system where it's overwhelmingly just being handled administratively, why, why not just, you know, handle it that way entirely instead of this sort of ritual sacrifice process we have where occasionally you'll find a junior person like Reality Winner or like Chelsea where you just yeah. eviscerate them to try to make an example of them. Yeah, so on that note, I've actually been told by Obama-era officials, not like Senate-confirmed positions, but, you know, pe- pe- people have told me privately right. that, one of the concerns that they've had with some of these high-profile leak investigations is that it may not act as a deterrent, but may actually, essentially by creating a name and generating the the mass media attention, that it's actually doing the opposite. It's drawing attention to the fact that, oh, somebody goes along and says, oh, uh, maybe I can do that. You know, So there's been a question among some people, perhaps pre-Trump era, because I don't know about Trump administration, but certainly Obama-era people were definitely asking the question, is the juice worth the squeeze? Are we just creating publicity for future people? 
who may be encouraged to do this because they see these high profile cases. And I think that's a that that may be a, a calculus that's also happening as well, is that prison isn't really the thing that some some people are concerned about so much as it is, oh, well, maybe people will defend me and I'll have people essentially like they, they don't want to create martyrs at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's become a, a, a concern post Snowden. Right. And if in American culture, if you reveal something to the public, you know, we still have these very strong kind of small D democratic norms. Yeah. You're you are a hero. Like that's that's how you get portrayed even in the mainstream mainstream press. So that that is probably a miscalculation. You're right on the on the government's part that you might uh, with every leaker you you elevate into the press and then lock up. You create you create several more. Who are like, yeah. wow, that person put everything on the line. I need to do the same thing and expose you know, what I've come across. Right. Ken, have you seen any of that? The, I don't want to call it copycat leaking, but like people who've been inspired by like previous whistleblowers? Totally. 100%. You know, people aren't always as well read on the specifics of what, you know, someone like Snowden discloses, but this general sense that, wow, that guy sacrificed all of this. I mean, the least I can do in a situation where, you know, maybe I'm working for a private company and this isn't classified and there's no criminal penalties. The least I can do is, you know, tell Ken or tell somebody what the heck's going on. I mean, uh, that's having an effect in my work. You know, when I'm nervous about career consequences, about things, I think, well, you know, look at these folks who who, who risk so much more. I, I can't look at myself in the mirror without <laughs> without sort of laughing at at, at the at the relative um, risk that I face. So absolutely, I've I've heard that mentioned explicitly, and I think it's just a sort of it kind of reverberates in the culture. I think because the notion of a dissident not being a traitor, but rather looking at them as someone that cares so much about the system that they come from that they want it to work better, and perceiving it that way rather than somebody betraying them, which is the way that the a national security state likes to try to you know he's a traitor and and all this insinuation about this is playing into the hands of X, Y, or Z adversary country. I think ordinary people hear these things and realize, whoa, actually, it's not that binary. Um, you know, People can do things that anger the institution, but also are going to end up helping it in the end and helping it to function better. So I, I do think that there's that sense on, on the part of at least a lot of ordinary people, maybe not the senior executive class. Before you guys go, I want to get your expertise on another thing. You're, you're both what they call extremely online people. Yeah. And social media is built quite explicitly for engagement. And by engagement, they mean people attacking and destroying each other to create content for, for people to then in, enjoy. Yep. Yet neither of you have fallen into that. How, how have you escaped that kind of quicksand or the morass of social media yet live you know, so much of your lives in it? Chelsea, I feel like you're just very chill. You're very chill. Oh, I have a very simple rule. I'm taking my notebook out here because this is important. <laughs> and I have a post-it note that says this. Nobody wants to hear you complain, <laughs> right? <laughs> so that's my simple rule that I've always had with regards to social media, right? I don't complain, right? You know, if I have something to say and I ha and I create like a social sort of social media strategy of things that I want to say in general and topics that I want to cover in general, and I stick to those because when I don't stick to those, I've that's when I've had negative feedback or I've, you know, it's just kind of fallen flat. I try to find things that I, where I'm actually generating content and content that I want to <laughs> and and not just, 
you know, oh, you know, it sucks, you know, I because, you know, I think there's that impulse and I and I get it, too. Like, there's definitely times when I'm just like where I just want to complain online. But like, again, like I block myself because, <laughs> you know, it, it, it the, the post it note, you know, the post note says a lot. And, and sometimes I have to replace it. And maybe I should just put maybe I should just tape it up there. I like that. I'm putting that up. Ken, Ken, how do you do it? I just feel like who gives a shit what I think about Mm -hmm. X thing. You know what I mean? I don't, I hardly give a shit what I think about it. Like I have my own, you know, internal thoughts, but it's just like, I mean, you know, our focus at, uh, you know, Ryan, I think you'd be sympathetic to this has always been kind of scoops and and breaking things. And, and and I've, I've, like I've ever done opinion, at least in, in written form. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I wish there was a loftier way I could say it, but I, it's just like, who gives a shit what I, what my feeling mm-hmm. or reaction, you don't have to have a public reaction to everything that happens. That's, that's how I feel. Yeah. I, I feel like that's like gamer debate culture right? that has just been written large, you know, cause like there's like the insular, like Twitch, YouTube gamer debate community, but it's, it's just like a microcosm of the larger discourse that happens in social media. And a lot of that's driven by, I think by clicks, views, the algorithm. And I don't, I don't see longevity in that. Someone will do something that gets a big splash in 2017 and then be forgotten about by 2019. Right. And as somebody who's written opinion pieces and boring opinion pieces for the guardian, I tend to keep my opinions very grounded and bureaucratic. I mean, because ultimately I am a bureau—I'm you know, a bureaucrat at heart. There's a longer, slower payoff to to that kind of credibility and that kind of legitimacy than just dunking on people. Although it feels great to dunk on people, and there are some people that really need to be dunked on, and I think that's mm-hmm. where where Ken and I agree. Like sometimes Kirsten Cinema needs to be dunked on, you know, because. <laughs> I have yeah I have two standards you know if you're a powerful public person that's a much different set of roles at least that I you know believe in personally yeah than if you're just some ordinary I mean you're allowed to be an ordinary person and wrong in in, in my view and not have to not have to get dragged publicly for it mm-hmm. and Chelsea what is, is there a name of any of the shows or content that you're going to be producing yes uh, that you could tell people about upcoming so I have a Twitch channel, which is uh, twitch.tv forward slash xyhlc87. That is where I play video games and I do a lot of like science and technology content. I also am producing my first YouTube videos on science and technology. The first video is going to be on cryptocurrency. The second video is going to be on artificial intelligence. They're very Bill Nye the Science Guy style videos that are pretty, it's a pretty large production. It's uh, it's taken me some time. It's taken me probably. I started in April, and my first video is still is still getting put in through the the editing process, and we're about to spin up filming for the second video. And I also have a Patreon to support these things, to support my endeavors beyond just Twitter, and uh, that's uh, patreon.com forward slash xychelsea. And we have a decent number of listeners who are uh, as old as me or older, and so they're, they're going to be like, wait, playing video games. Yeah. Well, can you tell people a little bit about what kind of audience uh, you have and, and you know, what, what, what do people see when they're kind of tuning in to watch you play? Yeah, so I, I have a younger audience, um, mostly 15 to 35, I would say. So uh, Zoomers and millennials, most of whom have a political bent towards the left. Not always. I just sort of like, it's safer for me to play video games, which I really enjoy, by the way, than it is for me to, to talk about like intense politics and things. And I just feel like it's much more motivating and much more positive for everybody involved. 
And also, I just want to sort of be like a role model for people because I feel like people in particularly in the gaming space have a tendency to be aggressive or try to do things for clicks and try to, you know, generate controversies and, and get content and stuff. And and I have more flexibility and more shielding from that kind of thing. Like just m- most most things just sort of like roll off my shoulders. So, you know, I, I view myself as, as being a role model. And I also like want to reach out to the younger generation and be like, hey, look, you can be you could be trans, you can be you you can go through the worst of the worst and still come out the other side and still have fun and still be positive and still be engaged. And I do a lot of educational content. Most of my, most of the games that I play are pretty cerebral. They're you know we're not talking about uh, shoot 'em ups. We're talking about like strategy games, city builders. Mm-hmm. You know, I talk about the environment a lot. I talk about politics. I talk about you know, construct very constructive things. You know, uh, historical warfare. I I know that you have an interest in uh, in the Second World War, <laughs> so uh, I highly recommend Hearts of Iron Four because it's a very good uh, war simulator. But I do play uh, a modded version, which is I, I play a couple modded versions, which uh, which have much better, much more fun alternative history content. Ken, any uh, either final questions or or final thoughts? Can we expect a, a Ryan slash Chelsea gaming? thing that we can all watch because i would really like to see ryan in a gaming situation in general like regardless of which game i haven't done much since street (laughs) fighter 2 but i would be i'd be happy to hey the graphics are pretty good on that not gonna lie this Um, is true yeah and uh you know um one of the other journalist friends that i have jordan yule he also does the uh the video games on twitch and that kind of thing and uh i'm I'm a huge fan or a follower of of uh hassan piker uh who has Mm -hmm. who's essentially made uh, a pretty big He's basically like bridge the divide, I think, between political commentators and uh, and video gamers. So it's been fascinating to see that grow. True pioneer. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. No doubt. Well, uh, Chelsea Manning, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Kenny Clips, thank you for joining us here on Deconstructed. My pleasure. Bring it to him. <laughs> That was Ken Klippenstein and Chelsea Manning, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcast at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.